Jesus 365 is our theme for this year. Each week, going back to the stories, the words of teaching of Jesus, the events in the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And part of the challenge is for us to hear it with new ears. Part of the challenge is for us to be honest about how we may have reconstructed Jesus to look more like us than the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels or, or to take some of the teeth out of his message or, or some of his teachings to make it a little more comfortable for us. So we're being honest with each other and we're looking at these stories and we're falling in love with Jesus all over again and learning what does it mean to be a follower, to be a disciple of Jesus. This morning, we're in Luke chapter 7, and we're looking at two closely linked passages, two miracle stories in the life of Jesus that Luke links together. Now, by the time we get to this place in the Gospel of Luke, the, the ability of Jesus to perform miracles is clearly established. In chapter 4, there are some exorcisms. Again, in chapter 4, he cures diseases. In chapter 5, he cleanses a leper. In chapter, uh, again, in chapter 5, he heals a paralytic. And then we have a teaching moment in chapter 6. And, and now we're in chapter 7. One of these stories I think will be familiar to you. And then one, for some reason, we just don't go to that often. So we ask the Lord to open up our hearts and our minds as we hear from the word of God again. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly. And let me pause there for just a moment. Some translations use a phrase like that. It doesn't mean that he is an important asset that he's worth a lot of money. You could also translate it, he was very dear to him. He was special to him. He, he valued that relationship very much. A centurion was there who had a slave whom he was very close to. And he was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, when these elders came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly saying, he is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is indeed the word of God for the people of God. A few things that I think we should notice this morning 
as we reflect on this encounter that Jesus has or almost this encounter that Jesus has, and, and I say it this way, one of the first things I think we should notice is that the centurion never meets Jesus, never talks to Jesus, never has a conversation with him. They are never face to face. Which brings up a very important question for us, then what is it that Luke is wanting us to learn? The way the story is so carefully laid out for us, relayed to us, making very clear how the story progresses. Jesus hearing this news on his way, stopped by messengers, never gets to the house. And then the way the, way the story concludes. Let me remind you that in Luke's gospel and in the volume that comes afterwards, the book of Acts, Luke presses the issue that Gentiles are part of the kingdom of God. Not an issue for us. Look around the room, a lot of Gentiles in here. A lot of Gentiles in the church. But think of it this way. Jesus is Jewish, the 12 disciples are Jewish. The day of Pentecost, all Jews that are gathered there, the church begins in Jerusalem. And so we see the Gentiles are those who are coming from the outside. And Luke makes it very clear as you read both Luke and the book of Acts that the Gentiles are an equal part in the kingdom of God, are to be treated as equal parts in the kingdom of God. He'll even go so far as to say, that's always been the plan of God that God chose Abraham to create a people and through those people all the world is to be blessed all the world is to be is to learn what it means to follow the one true God who created everyone to to be in line with those intentions and the will of God that's what Luke is going back to going back to that creation account always reminding them but Luke will slip in these stories where we start to get a taste of it early on and here we have Jewish elders who come to Jesus. Listen to their words. This guy is worthy of having you do something for him. I, in, in Greek, worthy is the first word. Worthy is he. They put that first. They want him to know, which doesn't that sound a bit like some of our prayers? Have you ever found yourself praying for someone and along the way in the prayer, you do your best to convince God that this person really deserves to be blessed by God? Lord, she has done so much for us. Lord, he does so much for the community. Lord, he has served so well. Lord, she is always caring for others. We find ourselves using the same thing, even though we know about grace. Even though we know about forgiveness, even though we know about God's love for everyone, we still find ourselves falling into this. And here we have this outsider in need, perhaps even respectful of those boundaries between the Romans and the Jews and encouraging these elders to go to Jesus because of a slave who is sick that he is concerned about and they come to him. Jesus, I know he's an outsider. I know he's a Roman, but he really is worthy of this. He's very generous. He even built our synagogue for us. Sounds like one of our prayers. As a matter of fact, I think this whole story serves in Luke's gospel as a model for us of what prayer will become. 
Prayer is a very important role in Luke's gospel. Luke will even give us more of the prayers of Jesus than anyone else by the time we finish the two volumes. It's an assurance about prayer. And notice, the elders come, worthy is he, Jesus, worthy is he to have you do this. But the message from the centurion himself is, I'm not worthy. You don't have to come to my house. I'm, I'm really not that guy. And I know something about who you are. The, this, this encounter is the assurance that the Lord hears the prayers of the faithful. But put another layer on there and think about the time period when it's written. It is an assurance that the Lord hears the prayers of faithful Gentiles, of faithful outsiders. It's an assurance that the Lord hears your prayers. And this centurion becomes a role model for the Gentile believers who are quickly going to become part of this Jesus movement. He is humble. I'm not worthy. He is generous. He's built a synagogue. He has an interesting piety that isn't afraid to cross boundaries, but seems to do so in a respectful manner. Not only is he a Roman, he's part of the occupying military force and yet has crossed the boundary somehow with the Jewish community and has, has created relationships with them and is now the one who is seeking Jesus. And on top of that, someone with influence and with power who is using that influence and power to help someone who is beneath him, a slave, because of the value, the friendship. Our first word this morning that I would like for you to remember, and there will be two of those, is the one we find at the end of this passage. And it's the one that describes Jesus who is amazed. That's our first word, amazed. Jesus is amazed at this unnamed man and his faith. That word amaze appears frequently in the Gospels and also throughout the New Testament, but in particular in the Gospels. But most of the time it's used in response to how people respond to Jesus, not the response that Jesus has to others. In Luke chapter 2, the crowds are amazed by the angels as they hear them singing on high. The crowds are amazed at the answers and understanding that Jesus has, the boy Jesus, that he gives in the temple. In chapter 4, the crowds are amazed at the words of Jesus as he interprets Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news. And we have this long list of the people Jesus is going to encounter. In chapter 4, again, the crowds at Capernaum are amazed when Jesus casts out an, un, an unclean spirit and they say, what are these incredible words that this person is speaking? Even the unclean spirits, they obey him and they come out. And in chapter 8, the disciples themselves are amazed that even the winds and the water, the sea, obey him. There are only two places in the Gospels where the word is used to describe Jesus, where Jesus is amazed. Once in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is amazed in his hometown at their absolute unbelief. 
Their unwillingness to believe him, their unwillingness to have faith, their unwillingness to understand what God is now doing even in their midst. And then here, it's the only time the word is used positively to describe how Jesus is feeling. And Jesus is amazed at the faith of this outsider, this Gentile, this member of the occupying military force in his own country who now becomes a model of faith for all. And I think this story begs the question, is Jesus amazed with us this morning? And is Jesus amazed as I, at our incredible faith and trust? Or is Jesus amazed at our unbelief? Our unwillingness to take risk? Our unwillingness to see what God is doing even with outsiders? Our unwillingness to be part of the unfolding kingdom of God? The next story is linked by time to the first story. Uh, some manuscripts even say on the next day. More manuscripts have it worded this way. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, a small town, a village, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son and she was a widow and with her was a large crowd from the town when the Lord saw her he had compassion for her and said to her do not weep then he came forward and touched the beer and the and the barrier stood still and he said young man I say to you rise the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. We won't have far to go in Luke's gospel before we see Luke head in a new direction, and that is Jesus will be on the road, he will leave Judea, and he sets his faith to go to Jerusalem, and we will follow Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and we are invited as disciples to follow him throughout Jerusalem. But in this part of the gospel, Luke is clearly establishing for the reader who Jesus is. He's establishing for the reader that Jesus is certainly an extraordinary person and those who are encountering him are beginning to understand. They're beginning to understand what God is doing and they're beginning to ask questions. Maybe this is actually the one we've been waiting for. Could it be that he is the Messiah and they're beginning to glorify God? And we even see the miracles beginning to escalate as they're moving towards that time when Jesus will make his way towards Jerusalem. And now we have this incredible story. We know the story of Lazarus, but for some reason, this is one that we don't often go to. 
The story begins with two very different processions taking place. On the one hand, we have Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd coming into the village, a procession of hope and joy and excitement. And they encounter another procession moving the other way of grief, pain, disappointment, and questions about the future. And even that, even that just short introduction to the story is enough to stop and just contemplate. Because isn't that what life is like for us? Isn't that what life is like for us each day as we get up and we really don't know what's going to happen? Each Sunday as we come in here to worship and many of you have come in this morning and you are so excited to be here and you're so excited to be with friends or family members and you can't wait to tell them what you're going to be doing this week or what happened over the weekend. And some of you have come in this morning carrying heavy pain and grief. Some of you are wondering what's going to happen to you or to your loved one this week as you are looking towards medical procedures or waiting for a diagnosis or treatments that are coming. And there we are in this story, encountering Jesus. Here we are in this room encountering Jesus and wondering what's going to happen next and where we are going with the story. This story is about real life. And in the patriarchal culture in which Jesus finds himself in the first century, the Roman Empire, widows are dependent upon their sons or their brothers or other male relatives for sustenance. What will happen now? Her only son has died. How can she possibly go forward? Who will provide for her? What will her life be like? Religion, James tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled by God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Had Jesus just passed by that day and done nothing, would any of his other miracles have made any difference at all? Compassion is our second word. Amazed is the first compassion is the second and Jesus looks at this real life unfolding and Luke tells us he is moved with compassion this is a word we've looked at before I've told you before it's one of my favorite Greek words it comes from the Greek word splachna that sounds like guts because that's exactly what it means guts it means that Jesus felt it in his intestines it's that moment when you have seen someone in pain and it moved you physically. You had a physical response to someone's suffering. That's the way this word is being used. The seat of emotions, not the heart in the ancient world, but the seat of the emotions being the guts. It is co-passion. It is suffering with. And Jesus sees this suffering and he feels it deep inside. Sympathy looks in and says, I'm sorry. Compassion goes in and says, I'm with you. Sympathy looks in and says, I, I'd like to help. Compassion goes in and says, I'm, 
I'm here to help. Sympathy says, I, I wish I could carry that burden for you. Compassion says, cast your burden on me. Too often, sympathy irritates with too many words. Compassion helps and hears in quietness and understanding. It doesn't take that much, you know. It doesn't take that much time. Usually doesn't even cost us much. The young man's name was Mark. He was in middle school. He was walking home one day when he noticed that a boy ahead of him had tripped and dropped all the books he was carrying. He was actually carrying a lot that day. He was carrying books and two sweaters and a baseball bat and a glove and a small tape recorder. Mark didn't know him, but he knelt and he helped him pick up all his stuff and they were heading the same way, so he offered to carry some of the stuff that he had. As they walked, he discovered that the other boy's name was Bill. He too liked video games, baseball, history, and he was having lots of trouble with some of his other subjects. They arrived at Bill's house and he invited Mark to come inside and they drank a Coke and they watched some TV and played some video games and the afternoon passed pleasantly. They laughed together, they talked, and then Mark went home. They continued to see each other around the school. Occasionally they ate lunch together. They would see each other around the town. They graduated. They went on to high school. They weren't close friends, but they had contact in high school. And then three weeks before graduation, Bill asked Mark if they could talk. And Bill reminded Mark of that day when he stopped to help him pick up all that stuff that he met, that he had dropped. Did you ever wonder why I was carrying so many things home that day? No. I cleaned out my locker because I didn't want to leave a mess for anyone else. I had stored away some of my mother's sleeping pills. I was going to commit suicide. But I realized as I was there laughing, talking together, I didn't want to die. I would have missed that time with you and many other good times in my life that followed. I'm, I'm trying to say, Mark, that you did a lot more when you picked up those books that day. You saved my life. And on that day when Jesus comes into the town and he identifies that co-passion, he is moved inside, he decides to do something. Because compassion involves intention and it involves action. It's one thing to say, I would like to help, and it's another thing to devise a plan, how I'm going to help. It's one thing to say, I sure would like to help that suffering or that need. I sure would like to make a difference there. It's, it's another thing to create a plan and to get involved, to take some time, to use some of our resources, some of our influence. We can do that, you know, this week. We can practice acts of kindness instead of responding with anger that we see so much around us these days. We can listen rather than talk as much as we tend to do. We can motivate others with our words, words that give life, words that inspire. 
Words that point people to the future that God has for them or has intended for them and has intended for all of us. We can allocate time to be with friends and with family members. Maybe do more than send a text, but pick up a phone and call or visit with them. We can share a hug, a handshake, all aware of COVID, but we also know how much that personal touch can mean. If Mark in middle school can take just a few moments and change someone's life, I suspect that we can too. The hope of the resurrection is not grounded in the fact that Jesus raised the widow's son. The hope of the resurrection is grounded in the fact that the one who felt compassion enough to stop and do that is the one who actually defeats death. And Luke lays out clearly for us, they get to decide, will they follow Jesus or not? And we get to decide, will we follow Jesus? or not let's pray Lord we ask that you breathe resurrection life into us today some lives that are weary and worn some lives that are filled with questions and anxiety some lives that are overflowing with joy and gratitude, happiness, and all of all that they have. And we say yes. Yes to what you are doing in the world. Yes to what you want to do in our lives. Yes to your kingdom. May you recreate in us real life. because of you, our Lord. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to sing together. We're going to sing about the kind of life we can have, about what it means to follow our Lord, and we give you an opportunity to respond. If you've never taken the opportunity to invite Christ into your life, to experience joy, forgiveness, grace, love, to find that purpose, that reason for getting out of bed and what you're going to do each day, we, we invite you to come. We would love to pray with you to be a part of that journey that you are on. If you're looking for a place to join together and to find how to use those gifts and abilities God has given to you, you've been wondering how you can get involved in what God is doing in the world, we invite you to join us on that journey as well. Will you stand and say yes? Mm -hmm.